and we're talking about living in the dimension beyond average. Beyond average. And this to me is ex extremely important because my observation has been that the early believers, as I read the second chapter of the book of Acts, there are some things there that are just, they're phenomenal. And you can read right over them and never notice it. Uh, first of all, let's remember that it's only been a few days before that the Lord Jesus was crucified. Now, that's the leader of this new movement of Christians. But suddenly, these Christians, and if you think that their Lord was crucified, that the next ones on the list would be the followers, right? Suddenly, the followers of Christ are thrust to a place of prominence among the society of the day, and everybody who is, was there, the rabble, the crowd, calling for the crucifixion of Jesus, you know what they're doing right now? They're saying, wow, look at those believers. Their lives are blessed. And the Bible tells us that they actually found great favor among these who only weeks before had been baying for the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's not a 90-degree turn. That's a 180-degree turn. Now, what made that happen? The Bible tells us that they walked in, in a measure of awe of God. There were miracles and signs and wonders being done. Their lives were so blessed that the very people who crucified the founder of this new faith began to look at them and say, wow, you guys, it's amazing. What's going on in your lives? And the people who actually were responsible for the death of Jesus, began to say, what can we do to get in on this? And they lined up, and the scripture uses this phrase. It says, multitudes were added to the church from among the very people who had sought the crucifixion of Jesus. It isn't until you read that second chapter of the book of Acts and the last six verses that you see there were a number of things that they did that I believe brought the divine favor and grace of God upon them. And change the perception of the community toward them. Everybody says that branding is so important. The famous words of one of the former presidents of Coca-Cola International was, take everything we have, every resource, every bottling plant, every truck, every distribution company, take it all, and leave us only with two things. Take all of our cash, our bank accounts. Leave us only with our name, and leave us with our formula, and in 10 years, we'll be right back where we were. That's called branding. The early church's branding didn't get off to a good start. But something happened after Jesus was resurrected that changed everything. And suddenly, everybody wanted to get in on this. Among the things that they did, I've been teaching some of the things that that they did that caused, I believe, the divine favor of God to come upon them. Among those, I'm going today to Acts 2, verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Say that. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And notice who did so. All the believers. That right there is a miracle. You don't get everybody to, together and to agree on 100% on anything, with 100% buy-in on anything. But yet all the believers bought into the apostles' doctrine and devoted themselves to it. And to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. King James says it like this, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, or the apostles' doctrine, which is what teaching means in the Greek. Father, would you speak to us today? I want you to open your word to our understanding. For Jesus, you said that there are truths hidden in your kingdom that are only revealed to the babes. Those that think that they know so much already walk right past the profound truths of the Bible and never even see them. 
You said, broad is the way and many there be that go in there at, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And you said, few there be that find it. Find it. Help us to find your truth today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I want to speak this morning from this subject. Let me preach. Let me preach. The question that I have when I read the second chapter of the book of Acts and the subsequent chapters that follow is what brought this significant and huge turnaround in the way the early church was perceived. I don't think that it was anything that man could have done. I think they stepped into an extraordinary dimension of the favor of God. I know many believers who are wonderful believers. They love God with all of their heart. Yet, it cannot be said of every Christian in the church today that they live in the dimension beyond average. Most of us, <laughs> to be very truthful, our feet are firmly planted in average <laughs> more than we want to admit. Among the things the early church did that I think that caused such extraordinary favor that it catapulted their lives into the dimension beyond average is they followed, all of them did, with devotion, the apostles' doctrine or teaching. What is the apostles' doctrine? I ask this because what you believe really is important. It is. And looking at the apostles' teaching, and I'm not going to get into specifics today because I rather want to address the general and current trend that exists in the world and in Christianity to try to take away from the teachings of the Word of God rather than embrace them fully. But the apostles' doctrine can be explained this way. There are two things that characterize the apostles' doctrine. First, there is the general message the apostles taught about how we as believers should live and then there are the specific doctrines they taught, such as the blood atonement, forgiveness, water baptism, baptism in the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Christ, and so forth. It is clear from reading their sermons and their writings that the apostles believed that the Bible was the way that men were supposed to live just as Jesus had instructed them they should. In terms of the specific doctrines, for those of you that have a bent toward theology, we could talk about soteriology, pneumatology, and other things like that. There's another time that I will deal with that as I have in the past, which is soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But I am concerned about the unrelenting attack that we see taking place even in the modern church against the credibility of the Word of God. Under the threat of death, the apostles refused to let go of what Jesus had taught them. You can threaten us if you won't, they said, but what is better, to obey God or man? We cannot help but preach the things we have both seen and heard. That was what they stated when they were told to calm down, cool it. They continued to base their teachings on the Word of God, not the changing opinions of men, which are subject to change at any given flight of fancy or moment. Regarding the specific doctrines they taught, the Scripture is very clear that they taught salvation could only be found in Jesus Christ and no other. None other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. That's exactly what they taught, and that we must be saved by being born again of water and of spirit. This day and age in which we live is not nearly so emphatic about matters like that. People want to listen to Oprah, who says all roads lead to God. I'm serious. I'm not belittling Oprah. That's her statement, not mine. All roads lead to God. Sorry, that isn't true. What she means is Buddhism will lead to God, Hinduism Confucianism, Shintoism, animism, 
all of these things lead to God. That isn't so. I wish that it were that simple, but someone needs to say what they said in the early days, that salvation can be found in no other than Jesus Christ. Mankind is restored to righteousness and a blessed relationship with God by the blood of Christ alone. And that continuing to live according to the principles of God's word will cause someone to live a blessed life. Romans 1.16 one of our texts today, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, read Gentile there, because everyone who wasn't Jewish was a Gentile. For in it, in what? The teachings of the word of God, the gospel, the Bible, and I'm using the broader definition of the gospel here to include all of the word of God because it's all good news. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul is saying that rather you continue in righteousness is directly attributable to the input of the word of God in your life. In it, the word of God, the righteousness of God is revealed. Some say, but times have changed and the Bible should too. Its message can't possibly be relevant as old as the scriptures are. There are people who genuinely believe this. And it is true that some things cease to be relevant because they never change. You didn't drive up here in a Model T today, did you? You probably wish you had one. Amen. It'd be worth some money now. Or a DeSoto. Or an old 57 Ford. Or Chevy. It's true. That if things get old and they don't change to accommodate the changing times, they quickly become outdated. Nobody uses rotary phone dials anymore, right? When was the last time you saw a payphone anywhere that worked? But though every else changes, the Bible must never change. Even though it's old, it's still just as new as the day that God gave it. And it's just as relevant today as it ever was. Amen. We age, but the word of God never does because it's given to us by an ageless God who is the ancient of days and the beginning of days. Speaking of getting old, here are a few signs of aging that I read about the other day. You're no, you know you're getting old when you see a really beautiful woman and your pacemaker opens a garage door nearest to you. Amen. You know you're getting old. Amen. You're getting old when you and your teeth don't sleep together anymore. When your back goes out, but you stay home. When you wake up looking like your driver's license picture, heaven help us. When it takes two tries to successfully get up from the couch. <laughs> Have you reached there yet? You know you're getting old when your idea of a night out is sitting on the patio. <laughs> when happy hour is a nap, amen. And your idea of weightlifting is just merely standing up. Amen. You also know you're getting old when you quit trying to hold your stomach in no matter who walks in the room. You don't care anymore. And you're getting up there when you enjoy hearing about other people's operations. And guys, you're definitely getting older when your ears are hairier, hairier than the top of your head. Amen. All right, how about this? Young people, you like your parties now and you've been told to tone them down a notch or two? You're getting older when you have a party and your next door neighbors didn't even know you had one. Amen. Everything else may be old, but the Bible's not. It's as new as when it was first given to us. And the apostles, make no mistake, preached the gospel. So let's first talk about what that means. Because that's actually a Greek word, Godspell, that means the good news. In reality, I have to tell you up front that that is an incredible understatement. Good news. It's an understatement. Amen. How about this? 
How about it is outrageously awesome news? How about this is the best news ever? How about it is amazing, stupendous, and life-changing news? That'd be a little bit more accurate. Good news would be if they found a cure for cancer or sickle cell anemia. In my mind, good news would be if world peace were declared and everyone stopped fighting and laid down their weapons. Or good news would be if the Democrats and Republicans actually, (laughs) hold your breath, (laughs) don't hold your breath, I should say, actually got along and were committed to making our nation a better place rather than forgetting the people who put them in office and voting for their party line agenda. Good news would be if everyone was healthy and well and owned their own homes and had good jobs. But the gospel, good news, that's what I call incredible news. We find the word gospel used in the Greek New Testament 98 different times. Here are a couple of other examples. Matthew 4, 23, and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you have believed in vain. Do you see that salvation is not a destination? You're saved if you hold fast. We've got destination sickness in the church where we think we get saved and then park and anything can go on after that. And the truth of the matter is you have to hold on to the word of God and never let it go. I wish I heard an amen somewhere. Paul said, or you will have believed in vain. This tells me that an important part of my salvation relationship with Christ is that I must continue to live by his word. And without implying any disrespect, the word gospel by itself just doesn't really convey how good the good news actually is. And there are some reasons for that. Don't think that I'm being disrespectful. The problem is that that unlike English with a vocabulary of over 2 million words, did you know that the languages of the Bible, both Greek and Hebrew, were much, 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 much smaller? Much smaller. Not only that, even though English has a working vocabulary of 2 million words, do you know the average working vocabulary of most of us in this room today is 20,000 words? 20,000. That's what they tell us. Let's look for a moment at the Greek language, since it is the language in the Bible that calls this message of the Word of God the good news. Did you know that the Greek language of Jesus' time, that the New Testament, written in Greek, only contains about 1,700 different words? That's all. That's all. They're used in forms or and different tenses, and it might seem like there are many more words than that because you don't read Greek, but they're used in 5,624 different ways, and those 5,624 different forms of the 1,700 different words of the New Testament comprise the 138,020 words of the Greek New Testament. Let me show you something else. I don't want to bore you with the details of another language because you probably never intend to learn to read Greek. But as in any language, there are some words that are used with much greater frequency than are others. For example, in English, the words the, a, you, him, her, I, and many others are used often in the course of a conversation. Some words not nearly so much. Well, there are 311 words like that in the Greek New Testament that are actually used over 50 times each and some of them hundreds of times. And together, those 311 words by themselves make up 80% of the words in the New Testament. Some are used hundreds of times, as I said. Here's something else that it's important to understand when you read your Bible. The languages of the Bible do not express comparisons in quite the same way that we're capable of in English because of our larger vocabulary. 
In English, we use words that provide a degree of comparison that emphasize a difference in quality. For example, we say some things are good, but something else is, come on, help me out, better, but something else is what? The best. For example, your child may think that McDonald's has a good hamburger. I don't know any adults that make that mistake, but I mean... If left up to us, we'll drive right by McDonald's and we will go to Fuddruckers, which has a better hamburger. But the other Sunday after Jerry and I celebrated our 50th anniversary, we went home and the whole extended family came and Jason, who is a part, Fargy, who's a part of our extended family, came over and cooked hamburgers and he's a master on the grill. Now, McDonald's may be good and Fuddruckers better, but trust me, Jason's was the best. They don't have those comparisons in the Greek language. And it's important that I convey this because when it says it's good news, what it's really meaning is that it's the most extraordinary news that there is. So never think of it in the same way that we approach a comparison in English and say, well, if it's good, I wonder what's better and I wonder what's the best. It is the best news there is out there. And to me, this also highlights the problems that I have with the way most denominations approach this scripture. Because this good news is all about how to live your life. And most denominations are not concerned so much about life, they're concerned about how you die. I contend that God is much more concerned about how you live than how you die. Amen, and if you even ponder this for a moment, you quickly realize the truthfulness of what I'm saying. Because if you get the living part right, guess what it does? It automatically takes care of the dying part. But you can get the dying part right and never get the living part right. Never live a life that is in the dimension beyond average. God gave us the Bible because he wants us to live. John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Who's concerned about you dying? The devil is. Who's concerned about you living? I have come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is the one concerned about you living. The Bible is more concerned about living than it ever was about dying. Because like I said, you get the living part right takes care of the dying part automatically. In fact, the word here where Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life, the Greek word is zoe, and it means the state of one who is absolutely possessed of vitality. Look it up in the Strong's Concordance. Absolutely possessed of vitality. That's not the experience of most Christians. How you doing? Well, I'm just hanging in there trying to make it, you know, I'm just trying to keep putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, want to make the rapture, trying to get right with God. Hanging in there. It doesn't sound like vitality to me. Vitality is when you can't wait for the sun to come up in the morning so you can get up and say, praise God, here I am facing another day. And the word of, that you may have vitality more abundantly, zoe more abundantly, the Greek word is perisos for abundantly, and it means superabundant, superior, over, and above, extraordinary. That was the word Jesus used. I am come that you might be possessed of vitality over and above and superior to and extraordinary to that of everybody around you. Amen. That sounds to me like the life beyond average. And when you look back, you will see that even from the beginning, that was what God wanted for us. He created man and where did he place him? In a vertebral garden paradise called Eden to live the best life possible. God loves us and wants us to have the best, but somewhere along the way, the enemy has completely deluded people and deceived them. Now they come into the church and if I can just get saved and hang on, you know what you do when you've gone as far as you can, you got to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on, Amen. Amen. That's what we're told. And sometimes we're so pathetically negative in our thinking that we do not live the life 
that's extraordinary that God wants us to have? Who was it that ruined and messed all of that up and caused man to be kicked out of the garden? It wasn't God. It was the devil. You see, God gets glory when you're blessed because it calls attention to him as your blessor. But guess what? The enemy gets glory in your misery and suffering. That is clearly shown in what happened in the Garden of Eden. Our lives cannot be blessed without God the same way they can if we know him and follow the teachings of his word. Without him, our lives are but a fraction of what they would be otherwise. And so look at the Bible this way. It's a road map. It's a road map to happiness and fulfillment. It's a road map to zoe, a life of vitality that is superabundant and superior and above and extraordinary in a way that others will, who do not know God cannot experience it. That's literally what Jesus said. Now, here's the problem. If you're going somewhere and you don't know how to get there and you get a map to get there, you have to follow the directions of the map. Suppose you decide to leave a few directions out. Because, you know, this is, and we've been on the road a long time, Maud, and, and, and you know, I'd really like to, to be able to get there in a hurry, so we're going to leave out the last 50% of the directions. Guess what? When you ignore the map, you get L-O-S-T. Lost. Can I hear somebody say that's right? That's what happens when you don't follow the map. You get lost. You never arise, arrive at your destination. And you say, well, I'm just leaving a little bit out. We have this strange way in the Christian church of thinking, well, I'll tell you what. I'm not taking much out. I'm just going to ignore 5%. And the other 95% I'm going to comply with. What happens if you only leave one direction out? Say the way you're supposed to go as you go down this road until you come to a certain intersection. Take a right. Go down that way. Take another left. Go down that. So Say you leave out the first turn. Do you get to where you're trying to go? No. In fact, it will take you 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Amen. Knowing the Bible is our roadmap to the dimension beyond average, I continue to be amazed at how many people believe they can change the Word of God and think that it still leads them to a life that is lived in the dimension beyond average or even to heaven. Am I in the right house right now? Amen. I'm amazed at how when they do so, they still continue to expect God to bless them and smile upon their lives. You see, here's what you need to know. The word of God is the seed that contains the fulfillment of every promise and all the blessings of God that he has ever spoken over your life. If you change the seed into something else, you change what the seed produces. I realize that what I'm talking about right now is extremely unpopular in some limited circles. And there are three reasons why I have to preach this. First of all, I have to preach it because as a pastor, I have to answer to God for what I teach. And so I'm here this morning saying, let me preach. I've got to answer to God. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, if I preach the gospel... I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I have to preach the Bible. Whether it's popular at a particular time or not, I have no option. I should always do it with love. Not like some of these folk I've seen in the church. Praise God, you're going to hell. Hallelujah, in Jesus' name. You know, they act like they're glad about it. You have to preach it with love. Secondly, I love the people of this church. And this is my Christian family. And just like you want your children to be blessed, or your wife, or your husband, or your mom, or your dad, or your brothers, or your sisters, 
and even your in-laws. <laughs> I want the people of this church to be blessed. And I realize that they cannot have the divine favor of God upon their lives without the word. And so again, I say to you, let me preach. Amen. And third, I actually believe that people really want to know what God has to say. I really do believe that. I personally think we're fed up with the opinions of people who claim to know everything. Amen. And we've been told by this one and that one what to do. And all it has done is created a bigger mess. We need answers that are from God. We began this discussion today by stating that the Bible contains not just the good news, but rather the incredible news of God's word. Now I want us to look at where the Bible came from, because that'll give you a clue as to why it's so incredibly good. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Where did it come from? I need a name, it's a response right there. Where did it come from? How much of it? Because you know what the word all means in Greek? All. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The first thing it says is it's given to us by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine. That word means teaching. It's given to us for instruction. Let me deal with that first. This is the instruction manual for life right here. And just like when you buy a new computer or laptop, or you buy a new car, you get an instruction manual, owner's manual with that thing. If you encounter any problems, don't go try to fix it by yourself. Look at the manual. Because we often don't know how to fix things by ourselves. I knew a guy, he was raised in Louisiana, dirt poor, Cajun, just like me, amen. And they found oil on his property, unlike me, amen. I wish they had. And he got a brand new car. Suddenly that, that poor Cajun had more money than he knew what to do with. He lived around Melville, Louisiana. He went and got a brand new car and he told the salesman, he said, Shy, I want one of them cars with all them options. And he got every option he could. And he was driving it around to show his family and his friends. Y'all remember the day when you'd get a new car at relatives you hadn't seen in 15 years? You'd just drive up, brother. We're just driving by. I'm wanting to see how y'all doing. No, you weren't. You wanted them to see you in your new car. That's why you were there. And he was going around, and one of his relatives, or his friends, it was one of his friends, his, the guy who did it, his name's Charles. He got in the car. He said, can I, can I get in the car? Can I sit under the steering wheel? And he said, show man. He said, go ahead, Chad. And he got under the steering wheel. And you know what he did? He adjusted the lever that moved the steering wheel up and down. And when he pulled the steering wheel down, his friend that had just bought the car went, what? You done broke my steering wheel on my new car, man. You don't even know the options God has for your life until you get this book out. You don't even know how blessed your life can be. And this is the owner's manual. Amen. It's also given to correct us. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pardon me, Pastor. I'll get out of the boat and swim a little while right now. I like the instruction part, but the correction part, not so much. And the people who object to the Bible, that's usually what they object to right there. It's the correction. You see, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Even if our behavior is destructive and we're blowing up our own lives or hurting the people around us, we often don't want anybody to tell us anything. And you know what we do? We create churches where people go to church and if somebody tells them anything in the form of a correction, you know, they get mad. They get a little huffy about it. I don't want to go to a church like that. And we have created sterile churches in this nation of ours where you can go and never hear a word that will ever step on anybody's toes. 
one of the brothers that attends the 1115 service. Sunday after Sunday when I see him, first time he did this, it, it was a shock to me. He came up to me and he said, preacher, how'd you get in my house? And I thought, what? What do you mean? He said, that message you preached, you was in my house this week. I know good, you were hiding in my house somewhere. And now when he says it, I just laugh with him. Because what he means is, how did you know what I was talking about and dealing with at home? I appreciate that because I want to go to a church that every once in a while corrects my life and brings me into alignment with the teachings of the word of Almighty God. Can somebody in the building say, that's right? And the scripture says, we need this word that is both corrective and instructive, that we may be complete. You see that word? Complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Complete means there's nothing lacking. And I want to ask you if something is lacking in your life. What part of the word of God, maybe, is it that has not yet found a place in your heart? Psalms 119 in verse 7 talks about the absolute utter perfection of the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The modern argument these days, and the reason that so many feel comfortable saying, I don't believe this ought to be taught anymore, is because this is the excuse we give. Well, the Bible's been translated so many times, nobody really knows what the original said, right? Wrong. The quality or the quantity of ancient New Testament manuscripts that have been recovered is unparalleled in all of ancient history or literature. There are over 5,000 original Greek manuscripts of the Bible, about 8,000 Latin manuscripts, another 1,000 manuscripts in other languages, Syriac, Coptic, and etc. In addition to this extraordinary number, there are tens of thousands of citations of New Testament passages by the earliest church fathers who lived right after the apostles and who also had the earliest manuscripts written of the Bible given to them. And they quote from it. And how could they quote from it unless they knew what it said? Okay? So this business about the Bible's been translated so much that nobody knows what it said isn't true. But let me tell you that there's an absolute disparity and dishonesty in the way that people approach this because you go to school and your professor tells you, you know, you got to read the works of, of Plato and Aristotle and Caesar and Tacitus and others. Do you know how many copies remain of their works? Anywhere from only one to 20. And the same guys that rail that the Bible's been translated so many times, we don't know what it really says. Those same guys tell you to believe what Plato wrote or Socrates or Aristotle, and there are far fewer copies of their manuscripts that remain. And then to put to rest the argument once and for all, the word of God has been, that the word of God has been changed so many times. Did you know that in 1947, a little Bedouin boy in a city called Qumran, town called Qumran, on the shores of the Dead Sea, found a cave with the Dead Sea Scrolls in it, and some of those dated back to hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And when they examined them, and I've seen copies of them in the, 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 the shrine of the book in Israel, the museum, when they examined them, they discovered the only difference between those copies and the ones we have in our Bibles were in minor differences in punctuation or spelling consistent with how different languages punctuate or spell. For example, if we were to go to France today, we would call the capital of France Paris, Right? But a Frenchman would say, Paris. Here we say, let the good times roll. Across the Sabrine River in Louisiana, they say, la zile bon ton roule. <laughs> Not only is the word of God perfect, we must look at the absolute and vital necessity of the word of God the scriptures that I've just read in Psalms 19 say that God's law is perfect, but then it goes on to tell us that without that law of God, we don't even know how 
to direct our steps. Psalms 19 and 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. How is it going to be possible to understand my errors? It's through the word of God. This is why Psalms 119 says in 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. We need God's word to help us find our way. You say, but wait a minute. We live in a much more sophisticated day when people are more educated. Isn't man smart enough to figure out what to do without God's help? Sadly, no. Because we're still affected by our fallen nature. Listen to Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And when you come into the kingdom of God, you know what happens? You begin the process of emptying the junk out and getting the truth programmed back in. Amen. And if someone does you the harm of taking away part of the word of God, you're only getting a part of the truth you need. As I get ready to close, let's look at what God is saying about changing his word because really you would think that mere mortals will never be so audacious or bold as to try and dare change the word of the living God, but that's actually become very common these days. Listen to what the apostle Paul said would happen. 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Beloved, we're living in those times right now. When the prophet Jeremiah sent a scroll to King Jehoiakim, one of his advisors read the scroll to the king. Jeremiah 36, and it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with a scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments. The king nor any of his servants who heard all these things. Read a few pages, rip them out, throw them into the fire. You see, that's where we're at right now. And that's what happened when the leaders of a country decide to dishonor God's word. Their followers do the same thing. And that's one reason our nation is in peril and we need the church to love God and love God's word. Amen. I realize this world will always have a problem with sin as long as a problem will have problems as long as sin exists. And of course, I realize there hasn't been a perfect world since the fall of Adam in the garden. But relatively speaking, I spoke with one of our school teachers that had been a school teacher for 46 years. And do you, you know, I made this statement in the first service this morning. Do you know when some of America's biggest, biggest problems began to emerge? When the Supreme Court ruled against the teachings of the Word of God on significant matters like abortion and prayer in schools. And he waited in the hallway to tell me I was a teacher for 46 years. He said, when they pulled prayer out of schools and said abortion was okay, we started going downhill fast. And I want to tell you, it didn't even really begin then. You know where it began for a lot of Christians? We started questioning the teaching of the Bible on the tithe. And you may not realize it, but you can't throw away a little bit of the word of God without a slow fade beginning to occur. And you end up somewhere you never thought you would ever be. Never thought you would ever reach that point. Now, they're trying to outlaw the Ten Commandments. They've been removed from public buildings, unfaithfulness and immorality of every type are embraced as one's right. And dare not, you dare not say anything about it because you're a hater. You're a bigot. You're prejudiced. 
That's my civil rights. I can do whatever I want to do. Amen. They subpoenaed sermons right here in our city of Houston, Texas from the sermons pastors were preaching in this city. They're defining preaching against immorality as hate speech. If we as the church do not stand up and say we need the whole counsel of God, we're going to lose everything. If the apostles apostles were living today, they would be in prison right now. Jesus wouldn't be any more welcome in our world than he was in the first one that he came to. And these days, it's gotten so crazy that I wake up every morning wondering how much crazier did the world get last night. As a nation, we've lost our compass and the light that would guide us through the darkness. I came in yesterday, flew in yesterday from a conference in South Africa, and when I landed, I turned on the TV just to watch a little of the news to catch up, and you know what they were talking about? Ivanka wore a pink dress to the G20 summit. Oh, I don't know how I managed to survive the week without hearing that news. And they had a bunch of feminists on, saying how terrible it was that Ivanka wore a pink dress. Because women need to be strong. I personally like my wife to wear a pink dress. Thank you. Stay out of my wife's closet. It's gotten so crazy. Psalms 119 and 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. We can't add to, but we can't take away from the word either. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And in Revelation 22, 18, this is what God said. If you add to or take away from his word, I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in the book. What should our response be to the word of God? Josiah was only eight years old when he began to reign. His dad and his grandfather were two of the most wicked kings that Israel ever had, Judah ever had. His dad was Amnon, his grandfather was King Manasseh. King Ammon and King Manasseh. They were horrible. And because of their extraordinary wickedness, they died. And someone else raised Josiah. And he went the opposite direction. And at the age of eight, the house of God that had been destroyed and laid waste with piles of rubble, they were using the house of God to throw away garbage. It was their garbage dunk. When Josiah became king, he ordered it cleared out and repainted and refurbished. You say, why did he go the opposite direction of his parents and his grandparents? I want you to listen up when I answer that question. Because the answer is simple. He was not raised by them. They were killed. He was instead raised by godly people. Imagine, it's unfortunate that the only hope some kids has is if someone other than their own parents and grandparents raised them. God send a revival to our nation. How sad is that? Parents are charged to raise their children with godly values. The truth is that a godly upbringing and influences are the only hope this world has. It's not in a great evangelist or in great sermons. It's how you raise the next generation. America could be completely turned around in one generation if parents considered the spiritual education of their children to be as important as their secular education. Or even their soccer and gymnastics competitions. Or their music or their TV programs. And so I say, let me preach. Let me preach. Let this staff preach. And by the way, as a grandparent, I have grandchildren that are extraordinarily gifted athletically. 
My grandson, Aiden, who's just a, 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 teen, a young teenager, is already being scouted by West Point for a full-ride scholarship. I have a granddaughter who's only been in gymnastics a short while, but she's extraordinary, and she actually led her team to some national competitions and, and, and wins nationally. But you know what I did as a grandparent? I looked their parents in the eye and I told them all of this is great, but at the end of the day, you have these grandkids of mine in church on Sunday, amen. You do daily devotionals as a family. Teach them to love and honor God and his word because that's what matters most in life. Most of the time, our kids are gonna grow up, graduate, and move on to other things than sports anyway. And as adults, most of them, there will come a time when the only sports they will be involved in is the sport of changing channels to watch the game on Sunday afternoon. Amen. And I'll just say this. If you do make the pros, let me preach. You pay your tithe. Amen. You honor God and remember who got you there. Amen. I'm closing. By the time Josiah was 18 years old, they had cleared enough rubble that they found a copy of the Word of God. And they brought it to him and they read it. And when they did, he tore his clothes and began to weep when he realized how badly Judah had transgressed the law of God. And he implemented further changes in society. And as a result, God spared the nation from the destruction that hung over them like some terrible sword of Democles waiting to fall at any moment. God pushed back the disaster. Josiah honored God's word and urged God's people to change their ways to keep the laws of God. And he and his people went on to be greatly blessed and live in the dimension beyond average. Jehoiakim cut the word of God out and the parts he didn't like he burned and the fire. And he led his people into destruction. And before it was finished, he had been killed in the invasion. And his people were made slaves to the king of Babylon. God help us to be like Josiah and love the word of God. I close with these life application points. Love the word. Can I hear somebody say, love the word? Tell somebody, I want to love the Word. Would you do that? And number two, study the Word. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Number three, go to church without fail and hear the Word preached. Never tie the hands of the pulpit. Tell them, preach to me the Word of God, Pastor. If you get on my toes and get in my house, that's okay. Preach to me the word. I want my life to be blessed. And number four, when you read it and you hear it, believe the word. And number five, live the word. Would you stand with me right now?